on the inside of your bulletin as well. We've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we're turning the corner in the book of Hebrews. The first ten chapters of Hebrews have been all about who is this Jesus. He's the most exalted spiritual being. He's, he's the great prophet. He's the great priest. And Hebrews 19, all the way to the rest of the book, answers the question, so what? What do we do with all this information? And so we're going to get into some practical application of so what of all these things we've learned about Jesus. So Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you know this about me, but I used to be a kite surfer. Okay, in addition to the crazy life I've led, such as once being arrested for doing youth ministry, I used to be a kite surfer. Now, I don't know if you know what kite surfing is, but you know when you're kind of going along the beach and you see this giant kite in the sky, and some guys down on the, on the water sort of, you know, boogie boarding down? I used to do that. And I used to do it back in the primitive days of kite surfing when people used to die doing this thing. You know, they sort of like the kite would pick you up and throw you up against a hotel, and that was all she wrote. I don't know, it was, you know, a little screw loose or whatever, but I was kite surfing. Now, I want to show you about a specific time I was kite surfing. In fact, it was the time uh, Will Rodriguez, my son, was due the next day. Leon was pregnant with Will. And I needed to blow off some steam, you know, because I've got a lot of work coming up here. So I decided to go kite surfing. And the wind was perfect. It's slightly, you know, it's uh, side shore. So the wind's blowing along the beach. And I got all my gear out. And, you know, you launch this 220 a square foot canopy of fabric up into the air. And you get out in the water and you sort of dive this kite and that gets you out of the water and you're kind of skiing on the water with this kite. So I'm out there having a great time when all of a sudden the wind just drops. Kite falls into the water. Now these, these kites are water relaunchable but you need a certain amount of wind in order to make it launch. So there's not enough wind to relaunch this kite. And all of a sudden, the wind pattern changes to slightly offshore. So now I've got this huge kite that I can't relaunch, but there's still enough wind that this thing is inflated. So it's gently dragging me out to sea. And it's there when I realize that I'm going to die the day before my son is born. Well, I'm being dragged out into the Chesapeake Bay, and all of a sudden, the water is starting to get bad. There's a storm a-brewing. And I'm getting dragged along by this kite, and I cannot get this kite up. And I'm out in the water probably about an hour and a half, two hours, started at 40th Street. It's about 80th Street, and I'm going to myself, I am going out into the bay. When along comes my rescuer, the Princess Anne tourist boat. <laughs> Remember that, you know, the giant blue boat that's coming along? 
They see me out there and they come along and they say, are you all right? I say, oh, fine, fine, fine. I'm anything but fine. And they, they can sense that. So they say, we're going to send a police boat out to get you. Fine, fine, that sounds great. So sure enough, out comes the police boat. And I, I'm just, I'm done. I'm done. I've been in three-foot seas for a couple hours here. I've got to get out. He, I get my gear, tumble into the police boat, and he goes ahead and he takes me to, and I, I throw up a couple times on the side of the, of, of the boat, and I finally get in, and I get home to the ire and wrath and consternation of my wife for imperiling my life at such a sensitive juncture. <laughs> now, why do I tell you these things? Because there's nothing worse than drifting. Okay, I was drifting, and there was nothing that I could do to stop this thing carrying me out to sea. Drifting is a horrible feeling. You know what's even worse than drifting? Drifting when you don't know that you are. Who here's been in the ocean, and you're playing, you know, and you're playing out in the water, and you're just playing for a couple minutes, and you turn around, and you're 10 feet down, you're 10 streets down. How did you get there? Drifting is a horrible thing. And the truth is we have a tendency to drift in all areas of our life, don't we? <coughs> you know, I used to have a great marriage. My spouse and I, we, we used to talk about everything. We used to communicate and love being together. But along came the kids and the bigger responsibilities with the job and the mortgage and the bills and all the things. And then all of a sudden you look at your marriage 10 years later. And you realize you don't even know the person that you're living next to. How about I used to be in great shape. I used to work out and really be focused on fitness and live an active lifestyle. But then all of a sudden, you know, the promotion, <coughs> the responsibilities and the late nights and then having to travel and meet with clients. And all of a sudden, five years pass and you look in the mirror and you're 25 pounds heavier, just like that. Drifting and not even knowing. How about this? I used to have a great relationship with God. Used to have intimacy with Him. I used to look forward to waking up and spending time with Him and reading His Word and going to Him in prayer. But then we moved and I lost my Bible and it's in a box somewhere and life got crazy and all of a sudden you turn your head five years down the road and you can't remember when the last time was that you talked to God. Can't remember the last time was you had a spiritual conversation with anyone. The worst thing about drifting is when you don't know that you are. So what do we do to stop drifting? This passage is all about this very question. In this passage, we discover the antidote to drifting. It's actually a three-part antidote. Number one, draw near. Draw near to the one who was your first love. Number two, hold fast. Once you've drawn near, hold fast and don't let go. And then finally, number three, stir up. Stir up love and encouragement for those around you. Three-part antidote to stop drifting. So if you have a sense that you may be drifting, or you may be all the way in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay somewhere, this message is for you. Draw near, hold fast, and stir up. Okay, let's look at these three. Number one, draw near. Verse 20, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, 
that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. See, in verse 20, the writer is summing up the question, how do we get near to God? Contrary to many people's popular belief, most people believe in God. <coughs> Statistics tell us 9 out of 10 people believe that there is a God who exists. The question on most people's hearts is not, is there a God? It's a question of, how do I draw near to Him? He who is infinite, who is great and holy, and who is up in heaven, and I who am so small and finite and sinful, how do I draw near to Him? But the passage tells us that a new way has been opened. This way open, actually in the Greek, would be the same phrase as a new right of entry. You know, one of the most, things that I'm most excited about, 264 and Great Neck Road. <laughs> Anybody with me? Yes. Come on, I mean, it is just a pain to get on 264 or off 264 when you've got to get down the road to Western Virginia Beach or Norfolk. So they decided, we've got to build this interchange. And so they're just working away real hard, working on opening this new right of entry on 264. But we discover here in verse 20, you see, that, that entry isn't open yet. But here, a new and living way has been opened from a finite people to an infinite God. Number one, it's new. It means it didn't exist before. It hasn't always existed. But rather, in the period of human history, a new way has been opened to God. And secondly, it's living. It's dynamic. It's active. It's not an on-ramp. It's a person. This way that has been opened, this dynamic way, is through blood and flesh and bone. This new way is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. A new and living way opened up for us. And the beauty of it is it's for us. You see that? You know, who paid for this 264 ramp? You know who paid for it? You and I did. It's our tax dollars indirectly happening to make this thing happen. But we discover that a new and living dynamic way has been opened up for us. That leads us through the curtain into the holy places of God. Now many of us are familiar with this concept of the curtain. This uh, big giant curtain that separated in the temple of God where he dwelt in Israel, the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies. Only one person could walk through that curtain, the high priest. But a new way has been opened that goes straight through the curtain. A new and living way. And guess what? This is even better. It's been opened and it's kept open. Verse 21. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. See, this one who opened the way continues to keep it open. Because he is a high priest who lives over the house of God. Leaving this doorway, this portal open through the curtain that we may go through it. And so the writer turns the corner and he says all these things. Since this new and living way has been opened, let us draw near. With confidence. Same word in the Greek as boldness. To walk through almost intrepidly. 
walking through with confidence and boldness in this new and living way. Now let me ask you a question. Why does the writer have to command this to these people? Because they're not. They're not drawing near, and if they are, certainly not with boldness, with timidity. And so he's commanding them, all the things that I've been taking time to tell you about what Jesus has done, take advantage of them and draw near with boldness. How draw near? Verse 22, with a true heart. No guilt walking through that curtain. With full assurance of faith. With confidence that your hope, that you have a true and living way, that you, when you walk through that door, you don't have to do so with fear, but rather with full assurance of faith. With hearts sprinkled clean and bodies washed with pure water. If you remember the Old Testament, for anything to be consecrated and to come into the presence of God, it had to be consecrated, either washed or sprinkled. So all the utensils, everything involved in the worship was sprinkled with water and also with blood to make it set apart and available to go into the temple. And the priests, Aaron's sons, before they were brought, before they were able to walk into the temple, what, were they, what happened? They needed to be washed. And the writer is saying, let us draw near with hearts washed by the blood of Christ, with bodies clean, so that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. You know, one of the things I love about being a father and love about my kids is their boldness. My kids, if anything, are bold. Recently, I picked up one of my kids from practice, and I had to make a phone call. So I've got my phone here, we're driving home, and I hear, Dad, Dad, let's go. I'm, I'm on the phone, son. Dad, we've got to go to the store to get a new soccer ball. And I was, I'm on the phone, I'm having a conversation. He doesn't care. Doesn't care that I'm on the phone, does he? Because he wants his soccer ball. And so he's approaching me with confidence, with boldness. Because he wants, is there any guilt? None whatsoever. Any hesitancy, perhaps? Oh no. Is there any fear or any remorse? No, it's second nature to approach his father with boldness and confidence because he understands that a way is open between him and me. It's his birthright. And so we have the birthright as well, don't we? Through Jesus Christ, Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father, Hebrews 4, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, God wants us to approach with boldness and confidence. You know what happens the day that 264 exit gets opened? I'm going to approach it with confidence and boldness because it's open and it's ready. And when I get on that ramp, I'm going to take my peppy V4 Camry, and I'm going to go right up, and I'm going to get on in 264, and I'm going to ease on down the road. So my question for you, in light of the fact that a way has been opened to God, is how do you approach it? 
Do you approach him with intimacy? Or is there a certain stiffness in your walk with God? Do you approach him with closeness and with boldness? Or frankly, are you more comfortable being on the other side of the curtain, a safe distance away? Do you approach God like my son approaches me? Or are you much more like a butler? How do you know? Here's how you know how you approach God. When you need something, where do you run? When you need something, where do you go? When you're angry, where do you run? When you're excited, where do you go? To God or to someone else? If not going to Him, let me ask you the question, what's stopping you? What's in the way of this door that's between you and God? Maybe you haven't realized what God has done in Jesus Christ. That His blood spilled on the cross, that His flesh given for you and me can give us full assurance of faith. Maybe you don't have confidence in the sufficiency of His sacrifice. And so you can't go with a true heart. Maybe you don't believe in the cleansing of His life. And so you can't approach with a pure heart. Let me suggest to you the focus of your life is maybe too much on you and not enough on Him. And what's the result? You're drifting. You're drifting. But the beauty is you can stop. Because a way has been opened. A dynamic and living way that will never close for those who put their confidence in Christ. So give up on yourself. Give up on religion. Religion's for the birds. Trust Christ in His finished work, because the first part of the antidote for drifting is to trust Jesus and draw near. Well, that brings us to our second point, which is to hold fast. If the first part leads us to faith, the second part leads us to hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Now, when these readers heard this word on the confession of our hope, what did they think about? Well, back then, to enter the church, just like Daniel did just a second ago, they would give a public confession before the church. They would be baptized if they hadn't already, and they would enter into the church by giving a public confession of their hope. And so the scripture is saying here to hold fast to the confession, to drive a stake in the ground, to draw near and to stay there. This word in the Greek is the same as to clamp down. Kind of like if a dog got a hold of somebody's leg and wouldn't let go of it. That's what it's indicating there in holding fast. But this is America. I like to keep my options open. It's not what the scripture is saying. See, in America, our concept of commitment is this. I'm committed as long as I'm committed. But the scripture is saying, no, 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 no. Hold fast to this hope that you have, this hope that you have confessed. And it's not saying holding fast to a confession of our hope, but to the object of the confession of our hope. That this one, Jesus, will bring me to God. That His blood is enough, that the way that He has opened is for me. And it even tells us how we are to hold fast to our confession. Verse 23, without wavering. In the Greek, without turning to the right or to the left. 
So imagine that I was taking this ramp on 264, okay? It's all set, it's ready to go, I'm taking it, I'm going up, and about halfway up, I start panicking. I don't know if this thing is stable. I don't know if it's gonna get me to the top. And all of a sudden, I start wavering to the right and to the left as I begin to panic. And guess what? If you go far, far, far enough on either side, you're gonna tumble all the way down without wavering to the right or the left. But how can you be sure, Carlos? Because verse 23 tells us that he who promised that this way that would be open is faithful. Jesus who promised is faithful. And the reason we can know that is because the reason this on-ramp exists in the first place is because Jesus built it. Jesus is the one who took the off-ramp that we might take the on-ramp. How was it built up? A road ramp is built up through crushed stone and rock. This living ramp was built through Jesus' body himself. How can we be so sure that we're gonna be able to draw near? Because Jesus Christ went far, leaving the throne room of God to come get us to build this ramp. How do we know that we'll be able to hold fast? Because Jesus Christ held fast. But the confession of Jesus Christ's hope was not that he would be brought near to God, but rather that he would ransom us, his children. Beautiful phrase in Jesus' uh, last week of his life, when he's struggling with this thing that he's about to do, and he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, this hour of his crucifixion. No, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, the reason that we can hold fast is because Christ held fast. But we must hold fast. Some people who have been to my house have had the opportunity to uh, be in my screen porch. And if you look back into the woods behind my screen porch, you'll see a magnificent edifice. One of the greatest architectural wonders of the world, a tree house, which I constructed with my bare hands and a variety of other people, including <laughs> several, 12 people actually, who's counting. But when I built this tree house, I built it, I wanted to make the tree house of all tree houses. And so I built it 16 feet in the air, the platform. And I mean, this thing was so high. By the way, the goal of this treehouse was so I could spend some time with my sons, you know, some guy time. I built this thing so high that I was afraid to even let them work on it. I was afraid to work on it. So I built this thing and I built it all wrong because I can't get to it, so it's so high. And here's the problem, I built this great treehouse. No mother will let their kids on the treehouse. It's just me. I'm up in the treehouse and there's no one else in the treehouse. So I've got to figure out a way to lower this treehouse. Now here's the great thing, it was between two trees, so the entire treehouse was suspended on these two main things of wood, 16 foot planks of wood that went across. So I said, oh, this is easy, here's what I'm gonna do. Here's the engineering right here, are you ready? I took another 16 foot piece of wood and I bolted it above the treehouse. And I took off a couple of central planks and I went ahead and I ran a cable around the high one, you know, the high board, I put an eye bolt in there and I put a cable and a winch 
underneath those bottom two, and I was just going to lower this thing. So I took off all the bolts. I had about 16 bolts into these two trees, and I unbolted everything, except for one bolt, which was causing me problems, but I figured I could kind of push through it. So I've got all the weight hanging on this one eye bolt on this piece of wood with a thousand pounds of wood suspended on it. So I clear everyone off, okay? And I've got the winch, and I start trying to drop this thing. Click. 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 Boom! The eye bolt drops. That little bolt that was left sheared off, and this thing drops 16 feet. Boom! Right in a second like that. And only through my lightning quick, quick Spider-Man-like reflexes, a second later, the treehouse is 16 feet down, and I'm hanging in the air, suspended, holding on to this board. And I'm thinking to myself, I could have easily broken a leg if this thing had gone down. And so what am I doing? Holding fast to the confession of my own, this 16-foot board. And I won't belabor how I got down from this thing. But my point is, in just a second, that was the one thing that I had to hold on to. And that's what this passage is saying, is that we've got to hold on. We've got to hold on to one thing, to hold fast to it, to cling to it with all of our heart. See, all of us are holding fast to something. Every single one of us is holding fast to something. So my question for you is, what is it? Is it it's either God or it's an idol. You know, I, I love my spouse and I keep serving my husband, and, but he's never around and frankly he neglects me and he's off somewhere, but I'm going to keep serving him and serving him because at some point I know that he's going to come around and he's going to remember me. And he's going to cherish me, and he's going to get, and things are going to get back to the way that they were supposed to be. Now, there's nothing wrong with longing for your husband, but that's a bolt that needs to be unbolted if you're clinging to that, because you can't count on it. In fact, you'll discover there's very, very few, if any, things you can count on in life. Keep on taking those extra assignments at the office that the boss keeps giving me, because he keeps telling me that one day. That corner office is going to be yours. When Bill retires, that'll be yours. And you'll get the position and everything that you work for will come true. But will it? Don't count on it. You're going to have to unbolt that if you want to hold fast to God. I keep on working at shaping my figure and changing the way I look to try to fit in with the ideal picture that society has for me. And I'll do whatever it takes to look like one of those people in the magazine. But can you? Don't count on it. You've got to unbolt that. Because you're holding fast to something. But the one thing that we can hold on to, the one thing that can sustain all of our weight, is the one who drew near to us so that we can draw near to his Father. And so put all of your weight on Christ. For he has shown himself to be faithful. So if the first part of our antidote for drifting is faith in Christ, then the second part is hope in Christ. So stand firm. This brings me to my final point, stir up. 
Stir up. See, if we're called to draw near in faith, and we're called to hold on in hope, then we're called to live in love. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, we learned something very important here. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's not. It's not a solo sport. We're in this together. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, verse 21, since we have a great high priest, verse 22, let us draw near. He's speaking to a body of people. I mean, think about it. Why are we here anyways? Why are we gathered here together on Sunday? Why don't we just all stay home? I'll MP3 this thing on Netflix, and we'll all kind of watch it at home. <coughs> See, the reality is we're not only here to draw near to God, we're here to draw near to one another. Because God is working out restoration in our relationship with Him and our relationship with one another. And so the scripture tells us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. The word stir up, paroxysmos, is the same word in English as paroxysm, which Webster's Dictionary tells me is a sudden attack or a violent expression of emotion. It's meaning in the Greek to sharpen beyond, to incite or to agitate. Now, in Christian fellowship, we get the concept of agitation, don't we? We're kind of good at agitating one another. But what are we supposed to agitate one another to? To love and good deeds. To help take this faith and love and to stir it up in one another until it finds expression in our love for God and in our love for one another. To take what's inside and to transform it to the outside. How do we do this? In the context of relationships. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, religion isn't a private affair. You need me and I need you and we need one another to stir up that which we know to be true until it's a part of the way that we live. See, what happened in this church here was there was no stirring. And because there was no stirring, there was settling. There was neglect. I was in my garage two weeks ago. It was time to clean out the garage. And I discovered that I had like 30 cans of old paint in my garage. And I'm thinking to myself, i got to get rid of this paint. And it was only when I started getting rid of this paint that I realized, you know what? I've got some really good paint here that hasn't been used in a long time. But you guys and gals know what happens when you don't use paint for a while, don't you? It settles. So you got good paint that's just sitting around doing nothing. So what did I do? I wanted to see some of the colors, so I went ahead and opened up one of these things, which I'm gonna do now. Very exciting, everyone stand back. Don't do this at home. And look at the beauty of this paint. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it lovely? It's disgusting. Okay? It's nasty. It's ugly. It's useless. 
But you know what happens? If I take this and I put it in here and I start stirring it up, okay, in the beginning, it's nasty. In fact, it takes quite a lot of agitation to go ahead and start stirring up this paint. It's going to take a little bit of a while here. I'm like Bill Nye, the science guy. You know, he's got a good job. Take a look. What do you think now? It's a lovely green color. If you don't, can't see it, I'll just put some on your nose here in a second. Okay, I've stirred it up, this paint's perfectly fine. I could take it right now and I could use it to paint our garage or our kitchen or whatever. It needed to be stirred up. How are we doing, friends, at stirring up one another? Because you do need to be stirred, and so do I. And you need to stir one another. See, I don't want Church of the Redeemer to be a bunch of paint cans sitting around in a garage somewhere. But if we're interested in what we hear transforming how we live, we're going to have to get close to one another. So that's what we've been doing. We've created four different community groups. Opportunities to come together for stirring. And guess what? They're horribly attended. Poorly attended. Do a women's Bible study. An opportunity to come and do this in each other's lives. Poorly attended. Couldn't get journey groups going. Because I couldn't get enough people that said, I'm ready for this. I need this in my life, Carlos. Guess what? You do. And I do as well. If we want our faith and our hope to be translated into love, we're going to have to get close to one another and to stir one another up. Is it comfortable? No, it's not. It's uncomfortable. It's also what Jesus is all about. If our impact as a church is small, maybe it's because there's no stirring going on. So make a decision. Get involved in someone else's life. Use one of these opportunities for stirring and stirring someone else. Jump in. Don't just be a part of the surface of things. Plant your stake in the ground. One of the ways that you hold fast is by stirring up. Well, I've gone on too long. Those people in this church drifted. Maybe we have too. What's the antidote? Number one, draw near. Take the on-ramp, it's for you. Number two, hold fast. Put your stake in the ground, unbolt the bolts, and cling with all your might. And number three, stir each other up in love. For Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. By this, all men will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is the three-part antidote for drifting away. Let us drink deeply of it today. Lord.